Welcome to The Gangster, book six in the Galactic Football League series. Written and performed by Scott Sigler, The Gangster is suitable for ages 12 and up and contains graphic violence. The Gangster is also available as a signed, numbered, limited edition hardcover while supplies last. To order, go to scottsigler.com slash store. Hello, junkies. Here we are with episode number 18 of The Gangster. But the big news is our 5 plus 1 equals 50% off sale on in-stock t-shirts at scottsigler.com slash shop. Be warned, we launched this sale on Sigler Ascension Day, which was April 1st, and our inventory got hammered. Got hammered like, you know, three guys working a late shift uh, on the factory floor, and it's Friday, and they got their paycheck. And before they go home, they go to the bar for just, just one drink, one quick drink. One drink turns into two, turns into six, turns into shot, shot, shot. Everybody getting hammered. That's how hammered. Our inventory got. We sold out of some stuff right out of the gate, but there are still t-shirts available. All t-shirts in stock are 50% off. The sale runs from April 1st to May 1st. Again, it's scottsigler.com slash shop. Now, if you didn't hear about the sale and you go to look for your own t-shirt size there and we don't have it, we're sorry about that. We know you're upset, but we launched this sale via our newsletter, our Facebook page, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and LinkedIn. If you're not signed up for the newsletter, that's the best thing to do. Do so at scottsigler.com slash newsletter. That's where we keep you up to date on pre-orders, sales, anything special coming in where we try and take all your monies. Facebook, of course, is facebook.com slash scottsigler, but that's not as reliable because Facebook throttles everything down. Even if you've opted into a page, you have no idea if you're going to see it or not. Twitter which for me is twitter.com slash Scott Sigler. Follow me there. Uh, it works, but you kind of have to be on Twitter when I post to Twitter, which when you figure there's 24 hours in a day, 60 minutes an hour, that makes it for kind of a long shot. Instagram, which is instagram.com slash Scott Sigler, is better because the people you're following, that content percolates in through the day. So follow me there as well if you're an Instagram user. YouTube, of course, is youtube.com slash Scott Sigler. Go there, subscribe. Click the bell so you see my ramblings when they post. When you do see something post, click the like. Uh, if you're a regular YouTube user, that's a really good way to see all the cool stuff that we've got coming up, those special occasions. But the newsletter is still the single best way for up-to-date announcements of sales and book launches and pre-orders and demonic possessions and all that all that good stuff. Again, that is scottsigler.com slash newsletter. So get thee to the sale at scottsigler.com slash shop. Get thee some t-shirts. Ha! Now, let's get caught up on the story so far, and then we're going to go repossess some demons because they weren't making their payments. Previously on The Gangster, a news report from an embedded reporter in the purest nation is about to tear away a veil of secrecy and reveal the results of Grand Mullah Fan Quick's disastrous policies. While in the Hypatia, under the protection of a planetary union warship, Quentin, Becca, Big Mike, Chodo, and Marcus Diablo are about to get some game-changing news of their own. And now... The Gangster, episode number 18.
transcript of a broadcast from Galactic News Network. Good evening, I'm Brad Chavez. Welcome to GNN News Main Feed. With us tonight, in person, is none other than our Emmy and Gillen Award-winning field reporter, Tom Skivers, who is back from a covert trip to the purest nation. Tom, it's a rare treat to have you here in person. Thank you, Brad. I'm happy to be here. Tom, you normally broadcast your reports from across the Milky Way, from wherever the news is happening. But for this report on the Purest Nation, you couldn't transmit remotely from there, correct? That's right, Brad. The Purest Nation is a secretive place that controls, or at least attempts to control, all media going in and out of its system. My camera person and I had to sneak in pretending to be pilgrims visiting on the landing site of Stewart. Once through the border, we were able to move around the nation's planets and cities, but had to constantly be on guard against being discovered as reporters. The Purest Nation does allow intergalactic reporters, though. Why did you have to go undercover, so to speak? Reporters are allowed, Brad, but only for specific situations and under controlled conditions. Sports reporters, for example, are often allowed in, but mostly only to boot a city. The current administration has allowed some coverage of construction of Mason's Hekalu, the nation's new capital, on the planet Solomon. Since this recent round of uprisings began, though, the church has cut off press access to almost all areas of the nation. Only state-controlled media is allowed to report, and they report what the government tells them to report. Any media organization that is not supportive of the government is considered to be an enemy of the purest nation. Tom, we'll get to your footage in just a moment, and it is very, very disturbing. But first, what can you tell our viewers about this recent round of Purest Nation uprisings? Brad, these troubles seem to trace back to the recent ascent of Fan Kuik, who assumed the title of Grand Mullah of the Purest Church a little over a year ago. As with most transitions of power in the nation, Kuik took over in a bloody coup. Kuik is the third Grand Mullah in the last five years. Power shifts so frequently in the nation that these changes are rarely covered by the galactic media at large. Kuek's policies have had a serious impact on the nation's economy, have they not? That's right, Brad. There are reports of graft and corruption even beyond the constant levels that are considered normal for the nation. Kuek lifted restrictions on automation in factories and farms. Unemployment has skyrocketed. Poverty has always been a major problem, but with Kuek's policies, the disparity between rich and poor is growing. Tom, is construction of the new capital also an issue that's driving this unrest? Yes, Brad, it most definitely is. Kuek's coup resulted in not only the loss of an estimated 3,000 lives, it did extensive damage to the capital buildings on Allah. Chemical and radioactive weaponry rendered many of those buildings unusable. Once sworn in as Grand Mullah, Kuek moved the seat of government from the Watu Hekalu, or the Temple of the People, to the city of Saudan on the planet Solomon. The new facility, Mason's Hekalu, is built on land that Kuek owned before becoming Grand Mullah. Reports are that Kuek used public funds to pay himself for the property, at a rate estimated to be 50 times the property's actual market value. In addition, there have been quiet accusations of kickbacks to Kuek's administration for construction contracts in the massive new capital complex. And when you compare that to the footage you're about to show us, the difference between the haves and the have-nots becomes all the more compelling. Tom, tell us about the footage we're about to see. Brad, I was on Mining Colony 6, known locally as McCovey. McCovey has been the site of multiple uprisings. While I was there, mining operations had ground to an absolute halt. 
Mining Company Security, Purist Nation System Police, Purist Church Honor Patrols, and the local Kretorakian garrison were all enforcing a stay-indoors edict to try and quell the ongoing violence. Tom, these uprisings are occurring all over the Purist Nation, but they've been larger and more violent on Makobi than anywhere else. Can you tell us why? Well, Brad, most likely because McCovey is the birthplace of Quentin Barnes, the GFL quarterback whose anything-is-possible speech of a standard year ago seems to have taken root. Barnes grew up on McCovey. He was a star player for the McCovey Raiders, the local professional gridiron team, before he joined the GFL as a quarterback of the Ionath Krakens. People on McCovey feel a particular affinity toward Barnes. His message is cited repeatedly in graffiti made during instances of violence all over the Purist Nation. But Tom, that was a speech about football, wasn't it? Perhaps, Brad, and perhaps not. Locally, at least, some seem to think it was a message from Barnes to the people of the Purist Nation. Let me read his words verbatim. Barnes said, Anything is possible. The Purist Nation people, not the rich rulers, not the priests and the mullahs, but the people— work harder and endure more oppression than any sentience in the galaxy. I'm proof that if nationalites are given a chance, they can excel, they can dominate. Those who think my people can't, they're dead wrong. Moving words, Tom. Do you think that nation citizens are taking that speech as some kind of call for revolution? It seems so, Brad. Keep in mind, however, that things have been bad in the purest nation for a long time. One half of 1% of nationalites have more wealth than the other 99.5% combined. The nation has the highest poverty rate in the galaxy. Over the past 50 years, there have been many revolts on nation worlds, and that's in addition to the coups and power grabs that occur within that top 0.5%. So why is this revolt, this Barnes revolt, if you will, why is it different? Brad, most of the previous revolts have been localized and easily put down. That is part of the reason the church has kept such tight control over the media, to make sure it is difficult, if not impossible, to broadcast messages of revolt across the system. The few uprisings spurred by Kuwek's alleged corruption are an example, as they have been isolated and quickly suppressed. The situation brought on by Barnes' speech, however, is different, because it was part of a sports broadcast. With that context, the message was subtle enough to slip past PN censors, which means Barnes's words played on all nation worlds. The speech was recorded, copied, and distributed so widely, it is now impossible for the church to make it go away. In effect, Brad, this was a call to revolution that everyone saw. His message is the first thing that has unified those willing to fight for change. It sounds like the situation has always been ripe for a revolution, but Kuwek's policies put fuel on the fire, and Barnes's speech lit the match. Yes, Brad, that's how it seems. There's a feeling of restlessness in the nation, an attitude that people have had enough of not just Kuwek, but theocratic rule altogether. Kuwek is doing his best to put this uprising down. Tom, you've made a career out of reporting from the most dangerous places in the galaxy. No one has forgotten your coverage from the planet Ol in the key rebel establishment. And you've been in dozens of areas of violence. What makes you think things are going to get worse in the purest nation? Because of hunger, Brad. Too many people are out of work. In some places, people are outright starving. Local security forces are tightening the screws where some thought they could be tightened no further. It feels like the purest nation poor have been pushed too far, and now they are pushing back in a way we haven't seen before. Tom, what does Barnes have to say about all of this? 
Brad, since the terrorist attack on the Ionath Kraken's team bus, the Touchback, which took the lives of Coach Hokor the Hookchest and other members of the Kraken's organization, Barnes has refused to speak to the media. We tried multiple times to reach him, but he has ignored all of our efforts. Considering that attack and the recent attempt on his life when we visited Earth, it seems Barnes is trying to stay out of sight. Amazing work nonetheless, Tom. Now, let's play the piece you made while on site in the purest nation. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Nationalites. It started out as a happy time. They were in the Hypatia's salon, enjoying the amazing food Becca had brought back with her, a to-go platter of Mr. Sam's that was bigger than the coffee table. Heaps of barbecued chicken, boxes of Sam's famous sides, including his light-your-mouth-on-fire falafel habanero biscuits, along with a bucket of still-steaming peppered potatoes. Quentin and Becca were seated on the couch. Big Mike stayed standing, as none of the furniture in the salon was large enough for him to sit comfortably. Quentin needed to buy a chair for the big man. Chodo sat in his usual place, a takeout container of disgusting food in his middle hands. Even Marcus Diablo, a fellow nationalite, had joined for the down-home purist cooking. They had gathered to welcome Becca back and to check out the GNN special report on the purist nation. As they watched, Quentin's feeling of happiness faded, shifted into one of sadness, of shock, of anger. Tom Skiver's footage from McCovey, Quentin's home planet, showed the scenes of people who had been pushed far beyond any reasonable limit. It's gotten worse, Diablo said, shaking his head. McCovey is such a crap heap to begin with. I honestly didn't think that place could get any worse. 
Kuwek is a real prize. Fan Kuwek, the latest Grand Moolah of the purest nation. New Grand Moolahs always rode in on a wave of bloodshed, but after they firmly established power, things usually return to normal levels of violence and despair. With Kuwek, though, that hadn't happened. He seemed intent on shredding any bit of tradition that might allow someone else to rise in power and challenge his authority. Quentin hadn't followed developments in the system of his birth, but Kuwik's post-power grab pogrom, apparently, had been even worse than the dozens that preceded it. Was the abysmal state of affairs shown in the holotank Kuwik's fault? Or was it Quentin's? As the footage progressed, Quentin recognized McCoby's landmarks. The stadium, the mines, the factories, the tenement housing. He even saw the sagging building where he'd lived as a teenager, where he'd shared one small room with four grown men. To keep what little money he'd earned from working in the mines, what little food he was able to buy, he'd had to fight those men almost every day. Yet here he was, a decade later, lounging on the plush couch of his private yacht, eating food flown in from an orbital station on a whim. He was more like the mullahs and the cardinals, reveling in wealth almost beyond measure, while those who went without struggled to survive another day. Back before football made him a privileged citizen, life on McCovey had been bad. Marcus was right. From the looks of things, now it was worse. Much worse. People were starving. People were dying. And if this report was accurate, they were dying, at least in part, because of Quentin. I don't understand this. I was just spouting some crap to a reporter. Nonsense, Chodo said. Your speech rang with power, as does the speech of any true leader. In the tank, an image of a boy, maybe ten years old, lying in a gutter, wastewater flowing around his bony shoulders. The boy was motionless, save for exhausted eyes that flicked left and right as if searching for help from someone, from anyone. Flies buzzed on his face. He was too weak to bat them away. The boy was about the same age Quentin had been when he had met Mr. Sam. This boy, though, wasn't lucky. He didn't have a Mr. Sam looking out for him. Had Quentin's words helped put the boy in that situation? Nationalites apparently had a name for what Quentin had said. They called it the anything-is-possible speech. But I was just babbling. I barely remember saying those things. Why is a shucking sports soundbite making people act like this? Because your words carry weight, Mike said. I am not the only one to tell you this. Quentin felt Becca nod. That infuriated him. Look at the damn tank, both of you. Quentin said. My words carry weight all right, but not the kind you two seem to think they do. He kept watching. An image of a burned-out theater. A family huddled down in a broken-down grav car that would never hover again. Lines of gaunt people waiting for food. A pair of blue-robed honor police using batons on a defenseless woman. Bats, flocks of them, flying overhead, their rapid-fire shadows sliding down walls and across empty streets. Trash everywhere, because the people who normally picked it up were among the same people cowering from the armed groups wreaking havoc on anyone they saw. Logically, 
Quentin knew he wasn't responsible for this. The purest nation had always been a bad place. McCovey and the other mining colonies far more so than the system's four main planets. Emotionally, though, he felt responsible. Had his speech really sparked us? Jock talk. Throwaway comments. Sure, he'd meant what he said, had even been passionate about it, because nationalites were just as good as citizens of any other system. But to see something set off the top of his head cause uprisings? And to have the authorities crack down this hard? The purest nation economy had ground to a standstill. Because of him. Because of his words. Companies and businesses had temporarily shuttered stores and offices and factories. People who were already dirt poor couldn't go to work. Q, Becca said, are you all right? I don't know. Should I? He gestured to the holotank. Should I do something about this? Marcus Diablo scoffed. Centuries of this crap and some dumb jock is going to fix it? You're not even a church member. What do you think you could do? Quentin shrugged. I don't know. I mean, I have all this money. Maybe I could do something. Until you could throw a football, that place thought you were nothing, Diablo said. Less than nothing. Just like that poor kid in the gutter. And the people on top still think that about you because you ain't one of them. Revolutions never start at the top, Mike said. Diablo's lip curled. Revolutions? The nation has a revolution every four or five years when a new mullet takes over. Nothing gets better. If Barnes sticks his nose in that business, all he'll do is make things even worse. So blow it out your extra wide ass, you giant mound of genetic engineering. Watch your mouth, old man, Mike said. You keep up with your speciesist talk, and it will go poorly for you. Diablo's face wrinkled into a mask of derision. It will go poorly, he said. I've whipped bigger punks than you. Mike's smile promised pain. I seriously doubt that. Becca stood. Can you two knock it off? This isn't the time for a pissing contest. Mike and Diablo calmly stared at each other. Chodo stood, take-out container in one pedipalp hand, chopsticks in the other. Would anyone like a tapeworm? Kimberlin and Diablo looked away. They are delicious, Chodo said. And I should point out that they are fully cooked, so you do not run a risk of getting your own intestinal parasites. Mike held up a hand. Chodo, please, would you mind moving those away from us? The smell alone is distasteful. He means it stinks like sewer chunks, Diablo said. Sewer chunks that a spider bear ate and then crapped out into the same sewer. Chodo sat down in his chair. You sentients are eating a pile of animals that have wings and yet cannot fly and are therefore unable to avoid slaughter. Yet you think my food is distasteful? Q, Becca said. I feel bad for these people, but I feel bad for you too. This is really getting to you. He nodded. Yeah, I guess it is. I don't know why. I mean, besides my words causing some of it or whatever. Diablo's right. Those people never gave a damn about me until I could throw a football. Maybe that doesn't matter, Becca said. This isn't the first time you've reacted strongly about your homeland, about the culture you came from. 
think of the very words you said that supposedly started this. It was a passionate appeal of someone who believes in his own people. Maybe you're more attached to McCoby and the nation than you thought. You're wrong, Quentin said. I hated that place. I don't care what happens in the nation. But did he care? Seeing all the misery, a portion of that pain due to things he had said, it stirred feelings inside of him that hadn't been there before. Diablo was right about one thing. The people who ruled the purest nation thought Quentin was nothing. But the people at the top were only a small percentage of the population. The people at the bottom, the vast majority of nationalites, were like him. Or, at least, like he'd used to be before football. Poor. Hungry. No chance for advancement. It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. The Hypatia's computer chimed. Incoming message from the PUV Victory. An excuse to stop watching this depressing footage? Quentin welcomed it. Put it through, he said. The images of misery and starvation faded out, replaced by a human officer in the dark blue uniform of the Planetary Union Navy. Hello, Mr. Barnes, the woman said. I'm Commander Phyllis Watson, Captain of the Victory. Quentin sat up straight. Uh, hello, Captain. I mean, Commander. Watson smiled. Captain is fine. I wanted to reach out personally because we have an unusual request. Victory crew members had contacted the Hypatia before, but never someone so highly ranked. If this is about us having a pilot for our departure, Michael Kimberlin is licensed. I saw that filed in your flight plan to Whipath, Commander Watson said. His license isn't an issue. What is an issue is that I'm afraid I have to temporarily suspend your flight clearance and request that you delay your departure. Quentin traded a glance with Mike, who looked concerned. There are four GFL players aboard, Mike said. We have diplomatic immunity. You can't detain us. Normally, that's true, but this request is from the GFL, authorized by Commissioner Rob Frost, Watson said. Your team owner is citing some bylaw or another that states you can be held temporarily in order to conduct owner-player communication. Greedock wanted to talk? If Frost was playing along, then this had to be a legitimate league policy. Some bylaw or another? Becca said. Doesn't sound like you're well-versed in this policy, Commander. Watson nodded. She didn't look happy. I'm not well-versed in laws regarding sports teams, no. What I am well-versed in is following orders, even when they come from the Kretorakians. You need to stay in your current location under our protection for another day. Watson clearly didn't enjoy taking orders from the bats. What she liked didn't matter, though. The Planetary Union was a subjugated government, just like the League of Planets, just like the Purest Nation. None of which changed Quentin's desire to avoid Greedock at all costs. And staying longer meant more possible threats. What if Villani had changed her mind about helping Quentin and instead decided to take him out? What if this delay involved that scary-ass pyrophor? We're leaving, Quentin said, as scheduled. Watson frowned. Then you will be on an unauthorized flight, which invalidates your blanket diplomatic immunity. Look, Mr. Barnes, this area of intergalactic law is muddy and rarely comes into play. 
this is my first time dealing with it. Your ship has been under Victory's protection for several days. We've avoided our normal duties in order to make sure that you are safe. We aren't happy about that, but we did what we had to do. If you attempt to leave, we have to stop you, which will be a huge pain in the ass for everyone involved. So, since we stood by you, I called you personally to ask you to stand by us. You are required to stay in your position one more day until the representative traveling from Ionath can meet with you. Quentin and Kimberlin again exchanged a glance. From Ionath, Kimberlin said. That's three and a half days away, not one day. The representative is coming via express relay, Watson said. Diablo let out a low whistle. A small fortune for that kind of flight. From Ionath, one of Greedock's thugs, maybe even Greedock himself? Unacceptable, Becca said. There was an attempt on our lives two weeks ago, don't you know? That attempt could have been backed by Greedock the Splithead, the same owner who made the request that we stay in one place long enough for him to get at us again. Is Greedock coming himself? Becca, always sugarcoating the facts. She was bold and unapologetic, and Quentin loved her for that. We are aware of that potential threat, Watson said. Which is why I asked Frost the same question. I was told the representative is a quith worker that you trust. Missal the efficient. Missal? That changed things. If Quentin could trust Michael Kimberlin, former member of the Zoroastrian Guild, then he could trust Missal the efficient. Missal worked for Greedock, of course, but the worker would never hurt Quentin or Becca. Greedock wanted to deliver a message and he'd pick the perfect way to do so. Perhaps the only way Quentin would listen. We'll stay, Quentin said. One more day, as you asked. Thank you, Commander. She nodded. Thank you, Mr. Barnes. You've saved us quite a lot of trouble. I appreciate that. She broke the connection. Quentin sat there, wondering what Greedock's message might be. The GNN special has another 30 minutes to go, Becca said. Shall we watch the rest of it? Diablo grabbed a piece of chicken. More time wasted rotting your brain worrying about crap you can't change, he said. Mr. Highfalutin Quarterback, if you're done chit-chatting with warship captains and whatnot, do you think I might beg of you to get back to work? In other words, get your fat, lazy, weak-willed ass into the gym! At least there was one person who agreed Quentin couldn't change the universe. Marcus Diablo's slaps and insults were maddening, but at least when Quentin was suffering that abuse, he wasn't thinking about anything else. A workout would be just the thing, Quentin said. Let's get at it. You have been listening to The Gangster, book six in the Galactic Football League series, written and narrated by Scott Ziegler. Follow Scott on Instagram and Twitter, where he is at Scott Ziegler, one word, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Scott Ziegler. For more information on the Galactic Football League series and for more free audiobook podcasts, visit scottsigler.com. The Gangster was directed by A. Sigler, engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2020, Empty Set Entertainment. 
theme music is the song They're Watching Me by the band Super Weapon. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.